I just woke up. Don't tell me it's time already. Another episode? Welcome back to your 12th favorite podcast, Reeducated, where we reimagine, rethink, and reinvent education. It's your host, Gautam Yegapin, alive and blessed to present today's conversation. Stay thirsty for knowledge, and I guess water too. Hello, hello. Welcome back. I hope y'all are having yet another phenomenal week. In today's conversation, I spoke with Dr. Tish Jennings. She's a professor of education at the University of Virginia and is a internationally recognized leader in the fields of social and emotional learning and mindfulness. In today's episode, we discuss the philosophy behind SEL and address several concerns policymakers have made towards its principles. We also discuss the shortcomings of the current public school system and share innovative solutions that could possibly lead to improvements. I wanted to start the conversation by first understanding what exactly social and emotional learning is. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Here you go. The way I think about it is, you know, all of us as human beings develop and there are ways in which we develop social and emotional competence and understanding and ways of interacting with one another uh, is the way I think about social emotional learning, learning uh, about myself, um, my own capacities, my own strengths and weaknesses, um, my own feeling states and how to describe them and, and then how to self-regulate myself in the, in the midst of an emotional experience in a way that's socially appropriate, given the context, um, the ways to express my needs in ways that get those needs met, including setting boundaries, um, understanding my the social context uh, and my place in that social context, uh, and then understanding how to build relationships that are supportive with other people. Um, finally, once you have all those skills, you're more able to make decisions that take into account the perspectives of everyone involved. So, you know, at one level, it's very basic. Um, And often children learn these skills at home by observing and interacting with older people, their parents, their older siblings, and their peers, actually. Um, and, and it can be very context specific, obviously, depending on your culture. You know, these ways of interacting and what's socially appropriate can differ across different cultures. Mm. Um, and over time, uh, you learn habits of mind and body that are socially, emotionally embedded in a way. Um, th- so as you become an adult, uh, you have habits that... Um, you enact in your day-to-day life. And I've been thinking a lot, and I know we talked about this a minute ago, but I've been thinking a lot about what are the social emotional competencies that adults need in order to be good models for the children that they're spending time with, whether it's a teacher or a parent. And I've been thinking about how sometimes we need to unlearn as adults because the things we might've learned as a child may not be healthy, for us, and they also might not be uh, good for the ways in which we need to model or enact these 
processes with our children or our students. So for example, we know from a lot of uh, research that when adults believe, have the belief that anger is bad, and this is most of the research that's been conducted on this, I have to say has all been in Western cultures, but in, the, in Western cultures, when an adult believes that anger is bad and they've been raised that way, they often shut down feelings of anger uh, when they experience it because it hasn't been acceptable. They learn how to block those feelings or suppress those feelings. Um, we know from this research that doing that isn't good for you. And not to say that you know explosive emotional outbursts are healthy, but being able to notice that you're feeling angry and understand that anger is a normal human state and that it has a function and then learning how to communicate it and enact things that help you get your needs met or manage your boundaries or whatever it is that you're challenged by in a way that doesn't harm other people, but get your needs met and get your needs expressed is healthy. So if I'm a person that has this problem with anger, how am I gonna teach my students or my children how to handle anger? And when they do get angry, when those children get angry, my tendency is going to be to shut them down, just like I shut myself down, which isn't going to help them, right? And it's not going to help me model those skills for them. But let's say I understand that anger is normal um, and that when I have anger, when I'm feeling anger, it's okay to express it in ways that are not hurtful to others. Then I can model it. I can say to my students as a teacher, you know, I'm feeling really frustrated right now because I'm trying to explain something to you all, but people aren't listening right now. And so I feel like I need to calm myself down and maybe you all could calm down so we could hear what I have to tell you. Um, and so I'm gonna take some breaths to calm myself down because I know that it's hard to explain things to you when I feel like this. Uh, and you can, you can model that for them so they can see, okay, getting frustrated is normal. Um, it's you can communicate frustration in a way that's uh, not going to hurt people and you can calm yourself down and get your needs met, too. Mm. So um, so I feel like the adult capacities are really critical to teaching these skills. Otherwise, yeah. if you have a curriculum that's teaching about things like anger and how to express it and how to manage it, but you're not very good at doing that they're going to be really learning more from you and your enactment of whatever you're doing than they are going to learn from the curriculum. Yeah. And so concretely, when we talk about SEL, what changes would need to happen in the curriculum to like introduce these concepts into the classroom? There are curriculums that have been developed that teach these skills, but now there's also more a growing focus on integrating these understandings into both the content and the processes in the classroom mm. so that they are learning it in the social context. So for example, if there's a conflict going on between students, it's an opportunity to learn these skills. It's an opportunity to investigate how you are both feeling right now um, you know, why you might be feeling this way and what you might need. Uh, and how would you, how do you communicate that? How, and how can we resolve this in a way that is a win-win? Um, 
so that both people learn, okay, it's okay for me to be feeling this way. I can communicate it and I can get my needs met in a way that doesn't hurt, hurt my relationship with this person um, and may, maybe actually might strengthen my relationship with them too. So um, so in that kind of a context, we we can teach a lot. We can also embed it in content. So for example, there's certain types of content that are really um, amenable to this kind of integration, like language arts. There's so much in literature that has social emotional learning in it. It's not like you have to bring in special literature. Almost every mm -hmm. form of literature is talking about people's feelings, their inner processes, their relationships with others, how they resolve these problems. And if you make that explicit in your discussions, in your interactions with your students, you can use these as opportunities for them to learn these social emotional skills. Yeah. You know, so something that as you're talking that uh, bringing up a feeling in my head is, so I used to take these singing lessons and I had this amazing teacher. And the reason I thought he was amazing is not because of any of the content that he taught me. It was that, you know, every few months I would be like, I've lost motivation to practice. Why do I need to practice? Why, why am I doing this? What is the purpose of this? And it's not that he would tell me an answer, but he would ask me questions that would point me in a direction every single time I ended up at a roadblock. And so through the lens of singing, he had been able to teach me so many life lessons. And so one thing that I'm curious about, and I think this can be done with math, science, I mean, especially English and uh, language arts, is at what point do you think a teacher may be pushing their own ideas and beliefs on the world onto a student? At what point does it kind of cross that where it's like, okay, do we really want our schools to be teaching this content? Hmm, that's a really good question. Most of what I know about how social emotional learning is approached is with this common understanding that we're all better off when we know who we are, uh, what our needs are, and how to get our needs met in ways that serve the greater good. Hmm. Um, in way and uh, and so, based on that common value, I believe that most educators approach social emotional learning that way. I am here to support my students ability to get their needs met and to the other and the other side of that too is to be a valuable contributor to my community um, one of the things we know about human beings is we have a very strong innate drive to feel connected to our social community whatever that is uh, and it, and it's it's rooted in our um our biology because we evolved to need to, to be uh, organisms that needed a community. Like human beings would not have survived on our own, you know, 70,000 years ago. We, you know, we needed our family, we needed our community. It might have been a small community, but we really needed it. So these needs arise from this biological imperative to be connected to a community. Mm. So uh, this 
these skills help us learn how to do that, how to be a contributing, valuable member of a community. And um, so by helping everyone in that community feel like they're connected, they have value, they have an opportunity to contribute, um, builds, uh, it builds resilience uh, hmm. and it builds these social emotional um, competencies that will allow me to be strong in the face of adversity, uh, be able to learn how to overcome challenges with social, especially social challenges. Um, we also know that when children learn how to recover from a like a, a conflict situation, they build skills, you know, so if I have an argument with somebody or I, or even, you know, with my parent as a child, um, and we recover from that, we get past it, we resolve it, we have a greater sense of connection with one another and greater trust it, to build. Because I know that if something bad happens and we have an argument, we'll get through it. We'll, we'll be able to survive that. Mm. Our relationship will endure despite this disruption. So learning how to handle those disruptions can be very helpful. Another part of this too that I see is important and, and challenging sometimes in school contexts is a key competency is self-regulation the ability to regulate oneself in this context. Uh, that means if I'm feeling um, really angry or uh, really anxious, I can I know how to calm myself down so that I can actually function. And for, and or, you know, it could be, I could be super excited and I can't calm down, right? You know, you've seen kids like that. I could also be really angry and not able to calm down. In any case, the only way children can learn this skill is by giving some freedom to be dysregulated. And often in our schools today, we don't give our students very much opportunity to dysregulate. I feel like schools right now over control children and that doesn't help them learn how to self-regulate. Um, and often teachers are a little um, wary of giving students autonomy. Um, and there's a tendency among educators to believe that we're in control <laughs> uh, when we're really not in control. Um, you cannot really control other people. Um, you can think you are, but you're not really. And sometimes that can create a sense of frustration mm. because if I think I'm supposed to be in control and I feel out of control, it can create a lot of stress. Hmm. You know, I think this concept of self-regulation is something I, I was th literally thinking about yesterday. So I was at a coffee shop and these kids come in and they're yelling, they're maybe like six, seven, and then they're yelling the whole time. And I was working there and I was like, I'm really annoyed. Like I wish, I hope these kids stop yelling. But then I took a second to think about it and I was like, these kids look like they're doing exactly what they want to at that moment. And then I looked at all the adults who were sitting around me and I was like, I bet you if you allowed people to express themselves however they wanted to, a lot more of the adults would be saying all types of crazy, would be yelling, you know, like would be probably a lot more uh, emoted in however they were acting. And 
So you're talking about how often teachers can and school systems themselves can kind of expect children to not be uh, so expressive and and and, and be uh, controlled. Do you think there's a certain level of that that we do for adults as well, and and that just kind of translates into school? Wow. Well, most of us grew up in this system <laughs> of being controlled like that. So yeah. I think often we expect that that's the norm. Yeah. Um, however, today, you know, with all the challenges we face in the 21st century, um, we need more people to think out of the box and to operate in ways that may not fit the way we typically think about things, you know, there's a vast diversity of human beings. And when I talk about diversity, I mean, thinking about neurodiversity and um, emotional diversity and, you know, gender, race, all of that um, functional diversity, that if we can't draw upon all of that, the broad array of capacities human beings have right now, uh, we may not be able to solve these problems. So, the more diverse diversity in our learners and our contexts are recognized and valued, I think the better off we are. And today's school systems don't really provide much for that at all. Mm. In fact, you know, if you wanted to create, from what we now know in the, over the last 50 years about learning, the science of learning. With that understanding, if you created a school system based on that, it would look 180 degrees different than what we have today. Um, because the system we have today was scaled during a time when we didn't know any of this about how people learn. And we were just applying modern technologies to scaling that we knew about without any understanding of the learning process itself. Um, that's why you have age bands. That's why you have sort of a linear assembly line type education where units are plugged in, you know, content is siloed. Um, there are standards that have to be met that are very narrow um, and don't account for diversity at all, especially in thinking and learning. Um, yeah. Because, you know, something I'm thinking about is in relation to that is how do you scale a lot of this SEL content? Because it feels that to be able to teach a student some of these skills, you have to know them so intimately in that you not only have to understand their strengths and weaknesses, you also have to understand what they want. That was a really interesting conversation I had on the podcast a couple episodes again ago where he was talking about how every teacher needs to understand what the goal of the student is and not put their own goals upon them. And so to do that, you have to really have this intimate relationship with every student. But when you know a teacher is serving really large sizes, which ends up happening in, in a country of 400 million people, how can that work? Because one thing I am afraid about is if, for example a lot of this content, there's like a right answer. There's like a right answer of how you should handle anger. And there's a right answer for how you should draw your own boundaries. Because I feel like it's so different for the individual, for what their goals are, for what their community and society is, that there's no like one right answer. And so if we 
broaden and we generalize this content, we could kind of just be like, this is how you should handle yourself when you're angry. This is the correct way. This is the wrong way. And then it seems like that's an overbreach of education in some ways. So how do we deal with this uh, generalizing SEL content to be able to teach so many kids? Wow. That's a great question. Uh, I was just at a very interesting think tank meeting in Chicago where we were looking at something that's now being called transformative SEL, which takes into account diversity, especially racial diversity, uh, because many of our social emotional patterns, habits um, reinforce inequity, inequities. Um, and so how do we how do we address that? So that was a um, that was a topic for this think tank I was at. And it became clear, or it's become clear to me anyway, that the adults and the adult competencies are really critical to this. Because if I don't understand, for example, and so here, here's a really kind of simplistic example, but you know, sometimes that's helpful. Most teachers in the United States are white middle-class women. I, you know, probably like 80 to 90%. Those of us who are white middle-aged women or white middle-class women, there is a kind of a common, uh, somewhat common culture there. Um, if I assume that certain ways of expressing anger are appropriate, or I was taught certain ways of expressing anger are appropriate. And I have a class that's very diverse. And let's say half my class um, are children who come from very different background culturally. Um, I could easily assume or interpret their behavior as bad because it doesn't align with the way I was taught, right? Mm. So that for me as a teacher in that context, I have to unlearn some stuff. I have to, I have to unlearn this belief that this particular way of expressing anger is the only way um, and that, or even other, you know, any kind of expression. Um, I might need to learn to really give myself a little space before I immediately judge a situation because I will tend to immediately judge a child based on my own beliefs about that emotion and how it should be expressed, uh, especially if I'm feeling a lot of stress. Because uh, if I'm stressed out, I'm not gonna have the bandwidth to give myself that space to take that moment and really self-reflect in that moment. So that may be, for example, the root cause of disparities in discipline, we say like racial disparities in discipline. You know, mm. um, black kids, especially black boys are more apt to be punished, disciplined, especially uh, excluded using exclusionary discipline than white kids. Um, so that may be what underlies the enactment of implicit biases, all kinds of implicit biases. That's just one that is very pernicious in this culture. Mm, I think that was an amazing point that you just brought up of, of there is this culture that exists among the types of people that you, you know, end up teaching. And so one thing I'm curious about is 
let's say you're an adult, for example, and you're taking an SEL, just you're learning how to regulate your emotions, you're, you're learning these skills. I think at that point, you would have had enough experiences of your own to know like what information you want to take in, where you want to improve and how you want to lead your life in the way that you want to. But for like a six or seven or 10 year old, or even, you know, a lot of these younger kids, they may not necessarily have such a, this is what I want for my life. So they, they are more likely to take on what the teacher gives them. And so that connects to what you were saying earlier, that in, in when you take SEL uh, embedded courses, for example, it's so much more important of who's actually teaching it. And so how do we ensure that the, the instructor is capable and qualified to do this? Well, the other part of this conversation we were having last week was how do we embed this in teacher preparation? Hmm. And that's a challenge because most teacher preparation programs are very jam-packed with um, sort of mandated content that the states uh, require be included in, in teacher preparation. So creating space for this information and, and understanding it. Another issue that we thought about was these days, a lot of people who go into teaching um, are young and developmentally, they're going through their own adult developmental process, which might mean that they themselves are still trying to figure out who they are and how to be. Mm. Um, in fact, now, like in Virginia, um, there was a change in the regulations uh, that no longer requires a master's degree because there's such a horrible teacher shortage. There was this understanding that we've got to make it easier to become a teacher. So now in Virginia, you just need a bachelor's degree to be a teacher. So you're right out of college. Um, you yourself may be still developing these competencies at the adult level, uh, just starting to, you know? Mm-hmm. So when we look at the education system for what it is right now, and we're like, okay, well, we see some issues here and there, and therefore we need to change the curriculum to enact some of these things that SEL pushes. First, I wanted to start off, what are some of these shortcomings? Where can we see these shortcomings in our current education system? Well, I think it's in society. Um, you know, children used to spend a lot more time with their parents at home, or at least one parent. And now children get very little time at home with parents. Uh, they spend most of their days in group settings. And also at home, there's often a lot of stress going on because it's very hard to raise a family today. It's very expensive. There's a lot of stress. Both people have to work. Um, and so often a, the parents at home don't have the bandwidth or the resources to provide this kind of learning for their own children. Whereas in the past, this would be something that would be, not explicitly anyway, but children would spend enough time with their parents where they would learn these skills. Their parents would help them resolve conflicts. They would help them interact with their siblings in ways that they felt were appropriate. Nowadays, it sort of lands on the schools because the kids are spending so much time in group settings. Uh, and the other thing that adds a challenge to that is that, you know, some, depending on their personality, their temperament, some children handle group settings better than others. You know, not every human being likes to be in a large group all day long. 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, to be yeah. in a large group of 25, 30 people all day long, it's exhausting. Uh, and I think we don't often realize that. We expect children to just like that. Some kids don't. Some kids need more time by themselves, more time or smaller groups to interact with. Um, and so the system itself doesn't allow for the variability in social emotional needs people have. Hmm. Besides, yeah, besides the fact that the family isn't providing this as much as it used to. And so in, a, in the ideal world in which we could build the education system from scratch, what would it look like there? Would you kind of, you know, have five-year-olds run through some psychological tests, which kind of, you know, puts them into certain types of classes? How would it work there? Well, you know, I, I think human beings have a very strong innate desire to learn. And if we create opportunities or create environments where that learning and that drive to learn is cultivated, is nurtured, uh, I think children will find their own way um, and they will be gravitate towards spaces and activities and interactions that meet their needs. So mm. having an environment that has more flexibility in it, has more opportunities for a child to discover where their interests are and what they want to do to discover so if if uh if a school is not so age segregated is not so so when when we think about this school system there's certain parts of the system that we could start playing with we don't have to have them all in group equal groups <laughs> of age segregated children we could create age mixed groups we could mm. create smaller groups and larger groups we could allow children to choose the group they wanted to be in, kind of like we do as adults in some cases. We could also change the way we think about time. Right now, we think that learning has to occur in like 40, 50 minute blocks. But I've seen kids spend a whole day on something and learn really deeply if they were very interested. And it's very hard to distract them because they're so interested in something that they can work on it for long periods of time. And that kind of learning is way deeper than touching on something, you know, every day for a few minutes or, um, you know, because you forget from one day to the next. So, so changing the way we think about time, changing the way we organize people, um, offering more opportunities for them to socially interact because when you have these opportunities, then you learn about other people. You learn to start to get to know, well, that's that kind of person. That kind of person, you know, might be kind of easily upset. So maybe when I talk to them, I don't want to be so jokey with them because it, they might get insulted, you know, so you get to understand people better and oh, and then this other person, oh, I can joke with this person all I want. In fact, he and I, we just get into joking like crazy and it's really fun, uh, you know, and we have to be careful because if we get too jokey and loud, then nobody over here can hear what they're doing or they can't pay attention. So we have to calm down, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. so they, they learn 
these dynamics and how to function in them and how to get along with one another in this where there's more flexibility. I mean, because if everybody's sitting in a row in a chair and they're all age um, segregated and they're all expected to do the same thing, there's very few opportunities to learn these social emotional skills, you know, the kind we typically engage in as adults. Uh, thank you. I, I love these conversations when they become, because I think to some extent we have to exercise our imagination to really think outside of the box of how can we, if we, instead of making tiny changes here and there, which are also very important, it's sometimes nice to just have a whole fresh, like, what if we just said no grades and we had a little bit of first grade, second grade, third grade, all t- you know, I mean, there's so many ways. I mean, I feel like my own, lim- my my thinking is so limited just by making slight variations to what already exists. It's so difficult to be like, if everything was to start over from fresh, what it would, what it would look like? That's, that's beautiful. And so, you know, one thing I really wanted to touch upon is this idea that, and this is something I can speak from my own experience, I feel like what my experience was in school is so different than what it is in the the world outside of school. One, you have freedom. You have a lot more freedom in the real world. You can live in any city you want to. You can go be friends with anyone you want. You can work any job you want. You can dress however you want. There's no real limitations as long as you're not breaking a lot of laws. And so in school, however, it's the complete opposite. You have to be here on time. You get in trouble if you don't show up. You have to be quiet. You have to, There's a billion rules you have to follow. And, and so I think sometimes when you get the freedom that you really get once you leave, it can sometimes be so overwhelming. And you're just like, I want that structure again. Let me just go back to school. I want them to tell me what's good and bad and give me a grade and tell me that I'm doing good. You know, it's, it's that in the world, there is no metric of success. I mean, you can pick whatever you want. There's no A to F for humans. I mean, if you want to value your strength, you can. You want to value your career, you can. You want to value your family. Like there's anything you could do. And so there is that huge disconnect. Would you say that's one element of this component of trying to bridge the two together? Or is that disconnect good for children? No, that is huge. It is a huge problem. It's rooted in this. I I keep coming back to this idea of the factory model. You know, the, the education was scaled using factory model um, elements because there was this idea that we were preparing people for a completely different world. Um, you know, if you need factory workers, you, you can, you know, have them do the same thing at the same time, you know, follow instructions by a bell. Um, you know, th- you know, factory workers are very controlled by a system. And that's what we see. But today, adults don't work that way at all. In fact, you know, most adults work in contexts where they collaborate with other people on problem solving or, or building or creating or... Um... So if you are trying to solve a problem with a team, uh, you need to be able to get along with those people. You know, we you need to be able to give and take, you need to be able to take criticism or respond to criticism or um, allow criticism to support your thinking, right? Um, If you've never had an opportunity to work with a team of people and you've never had anybody come and say, well, I don't know if your idea is so good, you know, you might be really upset the first time you try to work in a team. 
it because it give it requires a lot of give and take and and flexibility and understanding another's perspective. Um, and, and there's so many perspectives involved in the kinds of teamwork that we engage in. So like just for a simple example, if you're working in some in the business world, you're taking into perspective your customer, you know, understanding their, their needs, their interaction with that, whatever the product is. Um, and, you know, your, your um, investors and their perspective, uh, you know, so, and all of those perspectives are valuable. Um, so I think this way of teaching kids is doing us a lot of damage. I don't think it's helpful. And you're right. It doesn't prepare them for the next step. Um, and I see that with undergrads often in the university, they, they come to the university really confused about what their, what their goals are. Yeah. What, what their what, why is. Yeah, their meaning. You know, they're yeah. like, "What is the yes. meaning of what I'm doing? Where? Yes. You know, why am I doing this?" <laughs> yes, I, it's it's fundamentally lost. In in there's so many. I, I mean, I think one that why is one of the most important things as a human. Like, why are you doing what you do? Absolutely, meaning. You know, meaningfulness of your life is really important, and. In order to find meaning, you have to have an opportunity to explore. Yes. Because well if you don't explore, how do you know what what opportunities are out there, what might where your passion might lie? It might take you some time to find that passion to to and the only way to do that is by exploring a lot of different ways of being and thinking and doing yeah. a lot of different things. Yeah. I feel like this part of my life starting in grad school has been unlearning all of the things that I learned in public education and then in undergrad as well, in that I have been given the space to explore, whether it's through these conversations, whether it's through traveling, whether it's through trying new lifestyles. But I think one of the, the, the big difficulties of that is a lot of times how school is taught, and I find this to be a really big problem, is that people are very averse to failure. Because the way the grades are even given is, and this is something I always tell my friends, I'm curious to hear what you think about this, is that when you give somebody a 50%, right, there's this, con there's this understanding that I have not done well, I've failed. But it's really odd because if you had taken that same material or test or whatever a year ago or two years, you probably would have gotten a 0%. So you have actually moved forward. You haven't not moved forward. If, if it's just that you haven't moved as forward as someone else, or I mean, it doesn't even really matter at that point. You have developed, accumulated more knowledge over the span of your time, whether you got as much or less than somebody else. And so in exploring, I mean, I think what I really want to focus this conversation on is how do we start incorporating this into schools? I, I find it it's a really big problem and how do we approach it, you know, politically? How do we approach it through policy to get this stuff done? Well, one of the things you're pointing out is if I got 50% on something, it's because whatever that thing is, is norm-based, right? It's got it's got a bell curve embedded in it, right? So it assumes that the majority will land somewhere in the middle. So it kind of reinforces that that there is a norm, right? And there, there's a, a teaching to this norm. And there's this standardized understanding of something uh, that 
I'm obviously not meeting up to, um, when that might not even be something I care about at all. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Yes. Uh, so rather than, you know, imposing uh, standardized tests or uh, kind of summative examinations, that measure some narrow outcome that may or may not be meaningful at all. If, if individuals in education system know where they're headed, they know what they want to learn, and they're given an opportunity to assess themselves against a certain benchmark of uh, sort of a criterion-based approach where if I, so for example, if, if I know in order to be a good researcher, I have to have a certain understanding of statistics, let's say. This is a good one for me because that was challenging for me. I knew I needed a certain level in order to function and do the kind of work I, that I was passionate about. Um, so it motivated me to learn. And I did a lot of it independently before I went back to graduate school because I knew I didn't have the basics that I needed to even go to graduate school. But I was motivated and I knew what I needed to know. So as an adult, I chose to study something that I didn't really like or want to do for something bigger, a bigger motivation. And so I was able to, to, to monitor my own learning that way and, and motivate myself to do that. One of the things that I think is the biggest problem in education today is we don't trust children to be able to do this. And we don't know how to promote their capacity to do this. Um, we don't believe in our culture, in our society, that children have this innate drive to learn. You know, once they're in school, that is kind of dismissed. Even though we value that in babies, uh, and it's very obvious when you look at babies that there nobody i have a, a a brand new grandbaby she's only six months old and so i get to watch her learn to move and i'll tell you as human beings moving is something that it's it's autonomy right to be able to move your body independently and mm. to watch a baby work day in day out to just simply lift their head you know, and it's painful and it's hard and they keep working and working and working and pretty soon they can lift their head. Then they can lift their torso. Then they can bring their knees up. Then they can scoot around. Then they can roll around. They can turn over. And, to, and you know, you see that learning happening all the time. It doesn't stop, you know, and it's driven by this desire to be autonomous, to be able to move around on my own. Um so there is this innate drive that gets stymied in these systems. It gets, it, it, you know, I, when you talk to people in education, they say, you know, it's so sad to me because by the time they get to be like fourth grade, they don't care anymore. They don't, yeah. you know, they're, they've lost this yeah. love of learning. It, it's actually, I don't know, I, I wish more, it's mind blowing. I was, I you know, I was camping and, and there was, I've, I always ask young kids this. I'm always like, are you excited to go back to school? Almost every time the answer is no. And and, so and I, hate, I hated school growing up. I mean, I was actually talking to a friend today, a couple of days ago, 
And he was telling me about how he had like a big, you know, those reading assignments, you have to read a certain amount. And in the second grade, he had forged his parents' signatures to say he read a number of hours. And then I have similar stories too, where at such a young age, I had lost the purpose of why am I actually reading? Like, what is the importance of reading? I was like, no, I want that extra teddy bear gift at the end. I'm going to just cheat my way there without forgetting the absolute importance of what reading is. And it just took me, you know, two decades to figure that out. And it's like, imagine if those two decades weren't wasted like that, what, how much you could have just learned about the world, about yourself, it's endless. And so and I think I really resonate with the kind of point you're bringing here, which is that, and I believe, I'm curious if you believe this way too, like knowledge is not just, it's one aspect of it is to get a job and, and there is a training element to it. But the larger sense is to understand the world and understand yourself. And knowledge and education is key for that. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. It's, this is like the big question. What in today's world is education for? What, what does it, what does it, what do we need? Do we really need to institutionalize our children for 15, 20 years um, in this context like this? Is this, doing them any good at all? I, I really highly, I highly question that. You know, the other sad part about this is if you have resources, if you come from a family that has wealth, you can go to a fantastic school that is, allows you to discover who you are, that gives you these opportunities. Uh, there's plenty of private schools out there that are really innovative. It's just, the public schools ha haven't been able to transform in the ways that they need to, to match mm. the needs of today's world. I hated school over 50 years ago. <laughs> and when you think about that, that school's been kind of odious for over 50 years, maybe 60 years. It's sad. It's really mm -hmm. sad. Yeah. And I we have the you, data now. Yes. We know how we know how learning happens. You know, it, you know, in my school, the school of education where I work, it's kind of sad because there's this whole area of applied developmental psychology where people are studying engagement, curiosity, creativity, um, and what promotes that and etc. Then we have our teacher ed area that is involved in preparing educators. And we often can't link these two mm. because governmental systems control what we can teach and how we how much we can fit it in. And, um, you know, it's going to take some will to make sure that what this department is learning in their science gets applied in the ways that we prepare our teachers. It, and then there's a place where those teachers can enact that learning in a system where that can work. Because mm. even if you learned all this great stuff and you tried to employ it in the current system, you might feel really frustrated because there's no opportunity to do that. Mm. So it's, it, it's a real problem, yeah. the bigger system. Yeah. It's tough to solve because I'm curious to, to hear what you have to say about this. But often when we look at a policy, our first big question is, what outcomes is this going to improve? 
And so you need a measurable outcome, whether it's graduation rates, whether it's uh, going to college rates or income that point to, oh, well, this worked. But sometimes some of the things that we're talking about have to do more with satisfaction, have to do more with contentment. Or, and so if we had to somehow pick a metric that we're like, look at these schools that implement SEL uh, incorporated uh, curriculum and look at these outcomes, what would those outcomes be? Well, one of them that seems to be working pretty well is a sense of belonging. So people are in schools now are studying school culture and climate and asking everybody in the community, how do they feel? Do they feel connected? Do they feel valued? Do they um, feel like um, the community, even, you know, a sense of purpose can come from feel feeling connected to a community. You know, like yeah. if I, if I feel a commitment to my community and I contribute to it, that can feel like a purpose, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a first step in, you know, determining is this community supporting everyone? Uh, and if it's not, where are the holes and the gaps and, you know, where are we, where are we missing the mark? Hmm. Um, if there's certain students that consistently express this feeling that they're not connected, um, then we need to figure out why they don't feel connected. Um, I think also well-being and there's lots of different ways to measure well-being. Um, but if the people in that community are self-reporting that they feel good about themselves and good about what they're doing and uh, are happy um, and engaged, then, you know, I think I think we're doing the right thing. Hmm. Are there some countries that have gotten a head start on some of these ideas? Well, I I've heard and I haven't seen it for myself that Finland is very innovative uh, in this work. Um, there there are some schools in Italy in uh, Reggio Emilia, yeah, um, I've heard of those. Where I think they've figured out how to scale some of these ideas. Um, I'm actually taking a sabbatical in the fall to explore places inside and outside the United States where people are successfully successfully scaling um, learning that is more student directed or student that allows more student autonomy. Hmm. Have you heard of the um, Human Restoration Project? Mm -mm. You might want to check into them. They're doing a lot of work on professional development and supporting schools that want to take this direction. Human and Restoration so, Project. Yeah. Where is that based out of? Um, they're Well, they're kind of virtual, but the guy who runs it is in Ohio. Oh, cool. Yeah, and... It, I am looking for places where people are uh, doing this uh, so mm. that I can go visit because I want to spend some time in the classroom in these places. I, it's been a long time since I've actually been in a classroom and I want to see where it is happening and how it might be. So I can think more, I can develop some more ideas about how to scale it um, mm. and ways policy might be able to help scale it. Yeah. 
And so what you mentioned earlier, also some private schools in the United States also. Uh, do you have some names for those? Well, I started my career as a Montessori teacher. Mm. And, you know, Montessori schools, I mean, there's a variety of different types of Montessori schools and some are better than others. But in general, uh, they understand and value and uh, student autonomy. And they they honor this love of learning and this um, this respect, this deep respect for a child's innate capacity to teach themselves. You know, Maria Montessori developed what she called autodidactic materials. And these are materials that when children play with them or interact with them, they can learn through doing. Mm. And, um, and they were designed specifically to help children understand concepts without being taught explicitly. Uh, and so I think that's exciting. The problem with scaling Montessori is it's it's often expensive because those materials are expensive. Uh, the training is very specialized. Uh, and th the biggest challenge when I used to teach Montessori teachers, one of the biggest challenges is if you have this mindset from the public school system and you've been working in that system, it's very hard to shift your mindset to this place where you have this appreciation, value, trust that your students can direct their own learning. Mm. It, it takes a big shift in ways of thinking about kids and learning. It's a lot of that unlearning stuff you were talking about. Exactly. Earlier. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And that brings us to the end of our conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Thank you again for listening and making this process so much more enjoyable. If you haven't had the chance to already, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts to get the latest updates on new episodes. If you've been learning useful information here, feel free to leave a review as well. A little bit goes a long way in spreading this podcast. And have a wonderful day. And as per usual, stay re-educated.